Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my name is uh, Professor Michael Cox. I'm director of LSE Ideas uh, here at the London School of Economics. I'm an emeritus professor of international relations, and uh, I'm the host of Master of Ceremonies for this particular uh, important debate on the theme of COVID-19, the impact of the virus, and whether or not it's going to mark the end or a new stage, mark the end of globalization or even a new stage within it, which many pundits and experts out there are now predicting. Let me just say something briefly about ideas. We are a foreign policy think tank within LSE. We were ranked number one uh, very recently in the, in the world rankings of university-affiliated think tanks. And we do research on a variety of questions. But one of the things we like doing most and think we should be doing more of and do a lot of is public engagement. And one of the ways that we engage with the public, both in this country and, of course, right across the world, LSE, after all, is the global institution in many ways, is to ask the big questions and hopefully come up with some um, empirically inform the answers as to the way forward. And at the moment, uh, we certainly need some answers to the question that has been posed by this appalling uh, pandemic, which has left everybody in the world affected uh, one way or another. As part of our public engagement, we try to attract and bring in the best and the brightest to speak. And I think we have two of those uh, this afternoon in the shape of Professor Linda Yu, who is an economist who's written on economics on Asia, more recently on 10, 10 great economists and the way they've changed the world and what we can learn from them. And who also happens to be a professor in uh, LSE Ideas. And the other speaker this afternoon is Peter Watkins, an experienced diplomat, uh, and is a visiting senior fellow in, the, in LSE Ideas uh, as well. I will ask each of the two speakers to speak for no more than seven minutes. They may go under, they may go over. And when, that, when they have completed, I will then open up for your questions and I hope many answers. I would want them to finish speaking by about 4.13, about half an hour's time. And that leaves us a good one hour or so for, for, for a good Q&A, a genuine engagement in what I call the great uh, LSE uh, tradition. Uh, this event is being recorded, I should point out. We also hope that there will be a podcast uh, to follow. And you can get us on Twitter, hashtag, hashtag LSECOVID19. I'm going to make a few preliminary observations very briefly to set the scene, maybe pose some questions. The question we're asking is, does globalization face now a serious existential threat to its very existence. In many ways, people have been asking this question, to be perfectly honest, for a large part of the 20th century and even for part of the 21st. In the 1930s, globalization effectively did come to an end. A war before and a war after the Depression undermined globalization. But globalization has been with us since the end of the Second World War, and some would say it accelerated in the 1990s following the end of the Cold War. But certainly the 2008 crisis, uh, now 12 years ago, 
certainly did a massive amount of damage to globalization and put it under stress. The rise of populism, the challenge to globalization across the world, particularly in the United States, but not only, also raised a whole series of questions about the relationship between national economies, national societies, and integration into the larger global economy. So this, in a way, is not a new problem. But at this moment in time, I think we've got to admit that it's intensified to a huge, huge degree. And people are now asking an even deeper question, maybe a more dangerous and problematic situation we now find ourselves in. Is it now being undermined altogether as a result of the effective fragmentation and close down of the world economy? There are pessimists and optimists and people in the middle on this. I think the pessimists genuinely do think, and there's a large literature out there to suggest, that we really are in a new era, in a new moment, a new normal, as it has been called. And what we took to be globalization, whether in the 1990s or even after 2008, when globalization did recover to some degree, that we've now got to move to a new way of thinking about the new normal. The new normal could be something deeply abnormal. The startling economic impact of this crisis already is just extraordinary. Collapse in employment, collapse of the oil industry, collapse of transportation, the collapse of the hotel industry right across the world, mass unemployment now in the United States, deep problems economically uh, within Europe. We're seeing a major intensification of the rhetoric between the two largest economies in the world, namely China and the United States. Relations were not great before this crisis, but since the unfolding of this crisis, there's no doubt that this relationship, they represent, after all, 40% of the world economy, has got even worse. We within Europe clearly are also in trouble. It's not just a question of Brexit. That almost now seems like a parochial problem. Uh, we, we debated it for three years, but how parochial it now seems. It seems that now within the EU, there is a great uh, existential problem. Jacques Delors recently talked of a mortal danger to the European Union, the largest single market uh, within the world. And finally, how well have international institutions done? How well have they risen to the challenge? And I think, again, the answer to that is not very well, sometimes better than other institutions, but not very well. Look at much of the uh, criticism now being directed against the World Health Organization. What role has the United Nations played within this crisis? What role have other international organizations? And some would say that this, again, illustrates some of the problems we are facing in this uh, in this COVID crisis moment. So those are some of my observations. I come to no firm conclusions of my own, but I do very much look forward to listening to what you has to say, and then we'll move on to Peter Watkins. So no more from me. Linda, over to you and look forward to what you have to tell us. Thank you very much, Mick. And thank you for those thought-provoking um, and important insights to get us started in this discussion. Now, in my sort of opening comments, I think I'd probably start with what I view as a bit of a paradox in this COVID-19 pandemic. What this pandemic has shown is that 
we as all nations of the world actually have to coordinate if we want to have any chance of containing um, the spread of COVID-19, the sharing of medical knowledge, the sharing of resources. And yet, um, again, because of COVID-19, we also see a closing of borders because the shutting down of transportation um, across national borders has been undertaken by 130 countries. Um, and that is, again, to contain the kind of spread to get that infection rate R0 um, below one. So that's not the only kind of borders which are um, being shut, and I'm sure we'll explore some of that. But I think I want to focus my comments on what this pandemic has done in terms of thinking about this trend towards, towards deglobalization. And I think in some ways, it's accelerated it for both economic but also geo-economic reasons. So what do I mean by this? So for instance, there has been already a trend towards um, essentially uh, rebalancing supply chains. I think that's probably uh, the phrase to think about. And you see it because of environmental concerns. So if you look at greenhouse gas emissions, CO2 emissions, transport around the world is a big um, cause of, um, of emissions. And the consuming preferences of people are obvious that so we have to address the climate crisis and um, wanting to consume more locally produced goods, uh, wanting to have more locally sourced production. That is actually a trend that was already happening. And so if you take that and you layer that on another layer of a trend to go on top of it is having to do with technology. So for instance, um, additive manufacturing, uh, better known as 3D printing, um, means that the incredible advances of, of this, I'll just give you an example. You can take almost any printer like an inkjet, and if you know the coding, uh, to change the coding, you can actually use that uh, to print a number of things like dentists now do with dental crowns. So because this kind of technology has advanced a lot over the past few years, it's gotten to such a point that I've been told by an industry expert that um, nearly 100% of the airplanes that you've flown on has a 3D printed part. So being able to craft something on your premises without having to go through the supply chain, um, you know, that's already a trend that technology was enabling. Now I want to add another layer um, on top of, of that, which is clearly, um, as Mick said, it feels like a long time ago, but we were talking a lot about Brexit and the US-China trade war. Those were all adding to tensions around um, trade, around the movement, obviously, of goods across borders between US and China is because of when there might be tariffs, there might be restrictions on movement with Brexit. It was around um, businesses thinking about what will happen if we had a no-deal Brexit. Um, oh, and by the way, um, during this pandemic, the, the blue paper producers apparently tapped into their contingency plans for Brexit so they could source local production within the UK of loo paper. Um, but what that was suggesting was the just-in-time production chains that we had gotten used to um, over the course of the 1990s and 2000s was already beginning to fray um, as geoeconomic tensions caused businesses to have contingency plans. Now, that brings me on to COVID-19. So, as I say, there are 
health reasons uh, for why some borders have closed down. And of course, the um, the geopolitical tensions of COVID-19 have been very apparent in a number of ways um, in terms of U.S. Uh, pausing their funding to the WHO in terms of um, you know concerns about China's um, you know, sharing of information. So I think all of that and the reliance um, of um, on China as a global manufacturer. So when it shut down its production, because this is where the uh, pandemic originated, it sent a, a real supply shock through the rest of the world economy. But I would stress it's not just that because China had to be locked down. Um, Richard Baldwin, a trade economist, has said um, that this uh, pandemic has caused the top 10 manufacturing nations to pretty much simultaneously have having to lock down um, and close their borders. And in his phrase, um, you don't put um, all of your um, uh, eggs in one basket. Does not, doesn't matter what the basket is, don't put it into one basket. So if you lay on top of that, um, a lot of the reliance on production from China and East Asia of PPE equipment, of ingredients that go into pharmaceuticals, what you're getting is a picture that a lot of nations are, are looking at this and saying, do we need to diversify supply chains? Again, out of the top 10, maybe locally, maybe regionally. So I think what this pandemic has done is that it will begin to accelerate a trend that was already there, which is towards localization of supply chains. And to me, the tricky balance here will be there will be a tendency to want to weave in a foreign security intelligence policies as well as supply chain resilience to pick up all of the different factors that we've seen over the past few years. But how do you do that while balancing the need to be commercially open and to have the kind of openness that has really helped um, you know, the world economy, especially emerging economies, catch up and grow over the past 30 years? Now, there's quite a lot to unpack in there, and I'm not going to be able to do it in my remaining few moments, but I'm just going to take this opportunity to flag um, some of the work um, that uh, Nick and I are doing <laughs> at Ideas um, at the LSE Economic Diplomacy Commission, where we are actually looking exactly at this question, which is how do you um, interact um, commercial, so trade, foreign investment policy, and make that consistent with a principles-based foreign intelligence security policy in a way that enables growth, but does it in a way that's sensitive to the environment and sensitive about who loses within the, um, the nations of the UK and indeed within any country. Because the last factor I was going to stress is the other big trend towards deglobalization is something we have seen now for many years, and that's described really as a backlash against globalization, a backlash against the current system, which seems to create losers um, who are not, uh, who are just not part of the growth story um, that uh, economists in describing trade seem to present. And that's, of course, um, it's it's because of those who working sectors that the country is no longer specializing in, is the distributional impact of those who are losing out. It's almost um, better to think of it as a hollowing out process 
We think of that um, in economic terms, but I think of it as middle-class jobs, middle-class incomes, the pressure on that group and globalization technology together has really changed, I think, the way the economic consensus in our societies, um, which had been formed during an earlier time, but is now fraying under severe challenge. And to me, that's been the biggest pressure on globalization for many years. But I see the current pandemic as now adding more complexity to this question. And I'll just conclude by saying, um, you know, one of the, I think, uh, most um, difficult things to see in a crisis is where you come out through the other side. So my hope is in this discussion we'll have today and in the work at Ideas, we'll be able to look at um, these issues, form an analysis, get all of your views um, and try and um, see what the challenges are and then address them um, and use this crisis as an opportunity um, to create a more, um, a better economic system and a set of policies um, to take us into uh, the rest of the 21st century. But I'll hand back to Mick, but just to say, what a 21st century. I mean, pandemic, decade, banking crisis last decade, something does have to change. <laughs> Thank you. Thank, thanks, Linda. I mean, I, I picked up one big theme there, that there was already a genuine questioning of the benefits of globalization, who was winning, who was losing, which countries, which regions were winning, which countries, which regions were losing, which social groups were winning, which social groups were losing. That was already there. Certainly 2008 accelerated that, the rise of what we call populism. Mm-hmm. But what I think you've added here is to say this is really another pro- another stage in this questioning of the benefits and, and, and the necessity of globalization, that it's actually accelerating a trend that was already there. Not great news for globalization, but we'll have to wait and see about that. Now I'm going to hand over now to Peter Watkins to continue the discussion. Thank you very much, Linda. So Mick, thank you very much for inviting me to take part in this seminar. Um, As some people may know, I was a senior official in the Ministry of Defence until relatively recently. I'm afraid, Mick, that I haven't been a diplomat for 20 years. Um, But obviously, um, I'm speaking today in a strictly personal capacity. So I'd like to reflect on the international security dimension of the developments that Mick and Linda have just been outlining. And in particular, on the significance of supply chains as part of our evolving understanding of the security risks and threats that we face and how the pandemic will bear upon that. So first of all, supply chains. Um, To oversimplify just a little, until relatively recently, defense and the wider national security community, at least in the United Kingdom, did not worry that much about supply chains, apart from in certain very specialized areas. There was an assumption that the government could get most of what it wanted on the market. It simply had to choose the procurement route. So in the defense and security realm, it could be competition. It could be selection of what was called a commercial off-the-shelf or a military off-the-shelf solution. Or it could be a development program with a UK-based company, usually with European or US partners. 
But as far as governments were concerned, it was the selected prime contractor's responsibility to worry about the supply chain. And government had relatively little visibility of that chain below the top one or two tiers. This began to change about five years ago. And I think that, you know, links with Linda's point about uh, the pandemic not necessarily starting things afresh, but reinforcing trends that were already underway. So why did it begin to change? Well, it's because the policy community in this country and others recognised, particularly with the Russian intervention in Ukraine, that state-on-state or great power competition was back. But that competition was taking a very different form from the traditional one. Hybrid or grey zone conflict are the terms that are, are often used. And it consisted of disinformation, cyber attack, assertion, etc., etc. I could give you a long list, but I won't. And our supply chain, which previously was assumed to enjoy a sort of herd immunity, was now found itself inside the conflict zone. So key suppliers could be subject to cyber attacks or, quote, insider, unquote, operations, or simply purchased by investment vehicles linked to the governments of countries, which, to put it diplomatically, because I once was a diplomat a long time ago, are not necessarily our closest allies or partners. So in 2018, the British government obtained additional legal powers to intervene in certain transactions, powers which have been used, not very often, but they have been used, but they're still quite limited. So the government also published in 2018 a white paper setting out a more extensive notification scheme um, for uh, such transactions in the supply chain and the associated decision-making arrangements. As far as I'm aware, the introduction of legislation is still pending. But the UK government is not alone in Europe in reviewing its legal powers in this area. The other, and in some ways, aspect of all this is that defence and security equipment contains many small components and items, and often described rather dismissively by the cognoscenti as widgets, uh, which could be manufactured almost anywhere. The possibility that these could be tampered with in some way has been a concern for some while. Defence and security procurement decisions invariably involve trade-offs, cost vis-a-vis security supply being one of them. But from the defence and security perspective, a natural geographical shrinkage in supply chains of the sort that Linda's been describing would not be unwelcome providing costs could be kept down through the application of new technologies such as adaptive manufacturing, uh, as she outlined. So how will the coronavirus pandemic bear on all this? First, um, I don't think personally that it will put, uh, in quotes, the nail in the coffin, unquote, of globalisation. I think there's going to be a loss of innocence about globalisation, if I could put it that way. Um, For governments, what was seen in the past as being purely economic or technical decisions about the sourcing of components will become much more political. But the UK government and industry will want to work on defence and security projects 
with allies and partners across the globe, such as Australia, Japan, and the Republic of Korea, as we do now. And there will be, I think, wider political and diplomatic factors which will uh, continue to encourage that. So I don't see us shrinking in a sort of autarkic way onto a UK-based um, supply chain. Secondly, and excuse the, the pun as it were, but and not to beat about the bamboo, we are already seeing changes in the political and public mood about China. Personally, I see little point in a public blame game about the origins and early diffusion of coronavirus. But what has happened has crystallized an already growing unease about China's strategic ambitions and more pertinently, its political values. So we will probably strike a new balance in terms of inward investment decisions, for example. And thirdly, and in some ways most fundamentally, we're going to see a broader definition of national security. There will be a renewed focus on human security and societal resilience. To my mind, this is possibly the one good thing that might come out of an otherwise pretty dark episode, providing, and I think this is a big qualification, providing we don't go from a situation where pandemics were not in practice seen as a real threat to one in which they are seen as the only threat. We must avoid the tendency of trying to fight the last war. I go back to my earlier remarks, if I may, about hybrid or grey zone conflict. A number of us have argued for a while that we should update our concept of deterrence to pursue what we call modern deterrence, to deter these more amorphous threats more effectively. Now, one obviously can't deter a virus by threat of punishment, but there's also the concept of deterrence by denial which we might as well just call resilience. So in summary, to wrap up um, my remarks, the world was already getting more dangerous pre-coronavirus and in ways which challenged the assumptions of the West's halcyon sort of 1990 to 2010 period. There are increasing political and military threats, some of which could be exacerbated by the political and socio-economic consequences of the pandemic. And there are other man-made threats which take a less direct form, such as climate change. And if I could just interject on that very quickly, I think the, one of the real risks of the current situation is people will forget that in the long term, climate change uh, constitutes a much more existential threat uh, than the current situation. It would be nice to stop some or all of these threats, but that's pretty unlikely. However, we can certainly make our societies more resilient to them. And that's all I would like to say for the moment, Mick. Okay, thank you, uh, Peter. I, I, you, you raise again a number of very different points to Linda who focused primarily on the economy, although of course made it quite clear what is economics and what is security now almost seem like one and the same thing. And I think you made that, that similar kind of point. You also raised the question about China. It, it was negative views about China, perceptions of China becoming more a systemic rival rather than a partner or a stakeholder. That was already there well before COVID-19 
uh, came along. And I also agree with you, by the way, personally, that the blame game is not what we should be trying to, to play uh, at, at the moment. Your broadening definition of national security, I think, is absolutely crucial to what both of you have said, because it seems to me what both of you are saying is where we've lived in sil- intellectual silos before, in economists, national security, foreign policy analysts, and the rest, that kind of silo intellectual academic approach, I think, is now redundant. That's my own take on this. And I certainly hope that one of the outcomes of this, which I think we agree on, Peter, positive one, is a broadening definition of, of, of how we define what is security. It has to be security when tens and hundreds of thousands of people are dying or being affected like this, where the oil prices around the world are collapsing. The impact of that, which was not mentioned, of course, is what's going to happen to Russia as it budgets falls down at Nigeria. We ha- I had a discussion the other day with a friend from Nigeria. When, the, when oil prices are falling, this is going to expose the fragility of so many other states around the world as well. And I think the other thing I would just throw in by before bringing in the Q&A is, of course, it's the very unequal distribution of, of, of the negative downsides of this in terms of the poor, the marginalised. In the end, the, I suspect the global north, more prosperous north, to use that phrase, will get by in the end, although with huge tragic consequences and economic ones, one would worry, I think, even more profoundly about what is going to happen in the poorer parts of the world, which we should never leave out of thinking about the the consequences of this. So with those last comments from me, at least for the time being, I'd like to open it up for the questions and answers, uh, the questions to come. Where are the first questions coming from, please? Uh, Oh, there's Q&A here. I've got lots of Q&A here. Yes. Just to jump in, Nick, there's a, there's been a, I see a, a huge number of uh, yeah, and also on Twitter as well. I, yeah, I got I got a lot of things coming through, but not on Twitter. Okay, um, <laughs> let me just start with uh, man. I have a sixth form student. Will the pandemic and its resulting economic impact cause the global economy to fracture, especially in terms of China being the world's factory and the reliance between specialized economy of the world? There's another question I'll throw in. Several left-wing politicians believe the pandemic will bring about a reversal of nationalism, populism, etc. Do you think this is true? I'll leave you with those two questions to, to start off with. Uh, Linda, do you want to pick up on a couple of those? Thanks. Um, why don't I start with a question about um, a fracturing of the global economy? Uh, it's a very yeah. question. And I think um, that's indeed another insightful, um, I should pick up by the questioner, of... Mm that was already happening. So because of the US-China tensions, which obviously predate um, this pandemic, there was already a sense that if you wanted to avoid the fallout from investment restrictions and tariffs that get imposed, uh, sometimes by tweet, um, to know that it's coming, um, there was already a sense that um, some countries and some companies um, would have to think about, you know, do we do regional supply chain? So in other words, trying to avoid the US-China um, tension. And you look at what this meant for, say, Eastern Europe and East Africa and a number of countries, it really did cause them to think about which side to, to lean to. So I think with this pandemic, um, I think it has um, accelerated a trend towards what was already happening with global value chains for a number of the reasons I've described, including this one, where they're really regional, increasingly regional supply chains. So what does this mean for China as the world's factory? Um, I think it means that 
the trend that you have more regional production and you have more closer, shorter transport uh, regions, which is one of the um, uh, commercial factors um, that was driving this. So the example is apparently fast fashion um, meant that people had really fast changing fashion tastes. And so it's easier to manufacture in Eastern Europe so you can adjust your design and get it to Western Europe. So that's one of the reasons why we had regionalization anyways. So I think that trend will accelerate with the pandemic. Um, and I think um, within China itself, there were also reasons why it was beginning to lose its crown as the world's manufacturing power anyways, because of rising wages. You already began to see China move its economy more to the services sector, which is not the biggest sector in the Chinese economy. And manufacturing was moving into Southeast Asia and to countries like Vietnam and a range of others. So I do think um, we are going to get to a point where the multipolar world economy also has more multi-world, multipolar regional um, production and supply chains as well. And I think I'll leave that hard question about populism to, uh, to Peter and to you, Nick. <laughs> okay. Peter, do you want to have a go at that? Well, if I recall the question uh, correctly, it was that there would be a, a view amongst, um, I think, left-wing politicians was the phrase, <laughs> that there would be a reversal of uh, nationalism and so on. I have to say I'm more worried about the opposite. I think from what we've been seeing so far, we could get an increase in uh, nationalism, protectionism, uh, xenophobia of one sort or another. And I think we you know, need to guard against that extremely carefully. And whether that happens or not will depend very much on the choices that our governments make. I mean, they can play to that agenda or they can resist it and be very clear that the only way to deal with a, a transnational threat, as this is, is by transnational uh, cooperation. I think the other dimension of this, which you um, mentioned yourself, uh, Nick, at the beginning, is the international organizations have so far not exactly covered themselves with, in glory on this. And, um, you know, it, it came as a shock. I think that's perhaps understandable that, say, the EU was a bit slow to get going and so on. Um, but it's going to last for a long time in one way or another. And I think they, you know, they really now need to, um, you know, sit down and put their thinking caps on, as people used to say, and, and, and indicate how um, international cooperation coordinated by them can uh, bring about better outcomes. I think yours is a rather pessimistic answer to that more optimistic question, if I might say so, Peter. Uh, I'm afraid I tend to agree with you. The question is whether it's going to be short-term or long-term, though, whatever, whatever that means. It is quite obvious that in the short term, I think we have seen as – and, and we, we'd seen this before, by the way. It has, it's not new. You know, an increase of distrust between nations, a, a growing nationalism, often referred to as populism. Uh, and clearly this uh, this crisis has has accelerated that. You can see this debate about how do you get masks, how do you get various equipment, uh, all sorts of things like that. I suppose keeping the optimist, my optimistic heart open to the possibility, however, that maybe necessity will force cooperation. Uh, you know, in, in the short term, we will see the costs of nationalism, as we've seen throughout the 20th century, if I might put it bluntly. And maybe we're going to see 
that in the end we will have no alternative, to use the phrase, than greater cooperation to 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 deal with with this crisis, whatever the short-term downsides are. That would be a kind of taking a slightly more longer term towards that. Now I've got some other. I've got two other questions here. Um, one is on climate change. The issue is, I mean, not have we forgotten climate change, but how is this intersecting with the climate change debate? I mean, in this country of ours, the United Kingdom, we were fixated on Brexit, uh, but the world more generally was discussing something else, um, which was also climate change and climate emergency, not just a climate crisis, but a climate emergency. Now, for the time being, it would seem that in part that has been taken off the front page for the obvious reasons because of the crisis. But the question is, what's the intersection between the climate change debate and what, what this COVID-19 debate is about, Peter, maybe? And then there's a, there was another question here, Linda, maybe for you. If we go local or local supply chains, what impact is this going to have on Chinese economic growth? Because it has been argued that if Chinese economic growth goes, say, below 6% or 5%, it may even be worse than that over the first two quarters of this year, probably almost certainly is going to be. Does that then bring into question the stability of China? So what's the intersection between low growth in the world economy, localization, and the impact that's going to have on China, given that China has been such an important engine of the world economy, certainly since the 2008 crisis? Peter, do you want to have a go at the uh, climate change one? Or maybe both of you do. And then on the localization and the question of China. Thanks. So on, um, you know, coronavirus and climate change, I think there are two intersections, really. I mean, one's negative and one's positive. Um, I think the negative one is obviously in the short term, the focus on the uh, pandemic is going to make it extremely difficult to maintain the momentum um, that we were beginning to develop in terms of raising political and particularly international uh, political awareness about uh, climate change. And, you know, who's talking about preparations for COP26 now? Um, So there's going to be that sort of just drawing out effect. Also, I suspect that as a result of the economic consequences of the, uh, the pandemic, probably there'll be quite a large drop in CO2 emissions this year. Um, which no doubt some people will try and claim is proof that, um, you know, climate change, man-made climate change is all a load of rubbish and therefore we shouldn't be worrying about it. Um, I think a more positive um, a spin on it is that uh, what this um, pandemic has done is bring home to people, bring home to all of us, how what one might call non-traditional um, risks and threats um, can seriously damage um, our our societies i mean and and indeed our, our even our security and i think um you know before uh the focus the 100% focus on the pandemic i think there was already an awakening um on climate change i think the very sad events in australia at the turn of the year, I thought, think began to bring home to people that climate change was something that could happen to people like us and not just to um, others. So I think it will bring home to people that the the the, the risk from these other factors. Uh, if I can just put in a little plug, uh, Anatole Levin just published a very good uh, article in Survival 
um, on the need to see uh, climate change um, as a potential security threat, uh, which uh, governments have to deal with. And in some ways, um, in very different ways, admittedly, um, I think the coronavirus has rather underlined his point. Mm. Linda, over to you. I think just um, just quickly to add something on the climate um, emergency. I mean, I think the um, I mentioned that one of the reasons why there was a greater consumer preference for local produce was in part environmental. Um, so, you know, the the increasing concern um, over um, CO two emissions, a lot of it comes from. Uh, travel uh, globally, transport, um, all of that had fed into changing consumer preferences, us all wanting to be more sustainable. And that was driving businesses to think about localization. And so I see that as one of the ways in which perhaps this crisis can really highlight um, changing, rebalancing supply chains um, to meet both environmental concerns as well as um, what's enabled by technology. Now, in terms of globalization, I, um, I would stress again, getting that balance right between what is the right set of factors between um, being um, good to the environment and being good um, for society and making sure there's still a degree of openness. And um, that, to me, is one of the, the harder balances. But I think we veered probably too far in the past towards just what was economically efficient. And I think that era, um, it's, it's over. And I think this pandemic is going to help us see what we can actually do with borders that are closed. Um, and if you ever watch any of those uh, uh, COVID-19 cooking shows like Jamie Oliver, he's uh, always talking about local producers of farmhouse cheeses. So apparently they have nowhere to put their cheese in stores and they like for you to buy some. So that's just one you know, anecdotal example. And now the question of China's slowing growth, um, you know, Mick, you've uh, hit on something which, um, you know, I think with all of the, the news and the economic stats around um, COVID-19, one of the most striking ones is that the Chinese economy contracted uh, for the first time in the first three months of this year in terms of its economy. Now, I say apparently because I, I think official statistics is what is, is recording this and that only goes back to 1992. And um, there's always been, I think, some question around the statistics in China. But what is clear is that um, has had a massive impact in terms of the Chinese economy. And it'd be very surprising, um, given China's in a second wave of a lockdown, um, that it doesn't experience um, a significant economic hit as well in the second quarter of the year, which would mean that China will be in its first official recession in uh, uh, in about 40 years since it opened up its economy. I know those of you who are watching, I'm probably thinking they've probably already been in recession before, I, I agree. <laughs> um, but what I, I think what we're stressing now is, what I'm stressing now is, um, if you look at um, the province of Sehubei, uh, which is um, some of the worst affected um, parts, um, the provincial drop in GDP is over a third. So, I think we do have to monitor what this means for stability within China, because that's always been one of the big risks, is that when you have an economy uh, which is growing, um, then the political system um, you know, seems to be delivering. So let's see what happens with the slowing growth. And I imagine it will continue for at least the next few months, especially if this pandemic comes in waves and we may see another wave of it later in the year, which will also impact um, economic growth for the rest of the world 
China, um, Nick, as you rightly say, especially in the last 10 years, has been um, the biggest driver of economic growth globally alongside the United States. Um, so, you know, this is why um, this pandemic is considered to be um, potentially the worst since the Great Depression. Now, I, you know, we can explore more of what that means, but I'm just going to give my caveat, which I know both of you know, Peter and Mick, I do, whenever we talk about economic forecasts, you know. Um, I write a lot about great economists in my book, and the great economist Galbraith says, economic forecasting exists to make astrology look respectable. So I don't think anyone knows what the economic impact of this pandemic is going to be. Uh, but certainly the fact that it's hit China severely, and it looks like it's hitting the United States severely. And this morning, we have had a record contraction in uh, European Eurozone GDP, France is having the deepest recession on record. Um, it's quite clear. Um, it's not just China. It's all economies are going to have to really brace themselves for a very challenging year. Mm. Which leads me to the question, it's, it's really an observation, that we everybody keeps avoiding the analogy with the 1930s, and I don't think history does repeat itself. And I don't think we're going back to the 1930s for all sorts of reasons. Nonetheless, when you look at the scale of the decline of consumption, capital spending, exports, it's all in free fall. The American economy is looking over a cliff. The European Eurozone economy is more or less the same, although some, some societies are doing better at containing the pandemic, the economic impact still remains. Uh, Nuriel Rabin, he always a man for a good pessimistic analysis, I know, but he, you know, he said, you know, we're, we are really in the 1930s, even if we don't like to think of it in, in those terms. It may not have the same outcomes as it had in the 1930s with fascism, Stalinism and another war, but nonetheless, the scale of the collapse is, 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 is really quite extraordinary. When you add China to that, Linda, as you've done so well, again, and you ask yourself the question, what are, what are the factors that can bring us out of this? And there again, I think we do have, we face some really big, tough questions because we don't know if we've got the instruments uh, to do so. I've got some more questions coming through, quite a lot of great questions coming through. I'm, I'm not going to take them in any one order, but I'm going to just throw one to you, uh, Linda. This comes from a friend in the Foreign Office, Maria. She said... Um, if you go local or reshore, bring it home, to put it rather, you know, in those terms, that's hugely expensive. After all, David Ricardo, many years ago, as we know, talked about comparative advantage, as did Adam Smith, for very good reasons. It cuts costs. People then produce the stuff which they can produce better or cheaper or whatever. Now, if, you, if, if that is partially reversed, even if we don't go back to complete autarky, as I think Peter correctly suggested, Nonetheless, that is really going to increase the costs of, of, of running economies, is it not? Um, so we, we are certainly not um, abandoning comparative advantage. <laughs> um, no. What we are doing, I think, is layering into it um, the impact of technology, specifically additive manufacturing, uh, 3D printing. So as I mentioned, before this pandemic hit, there was already... Um, global value chains were really becoming local uh, or regional value chains. So there was a phenomenon called reshoring, uh, which you saw mostly in the United States, 
where um, this actually predates President Trump. So this is under President Obama. For technology reasons, because of automation, as well as um, additive manufacturing, that type of technology, and um, to be honest, it was also high energy costs, rising wages in China, and very productive American factories, um, companies were already moving manufacturing out of China back into the United States. And it always struck me that the CEO of Stanley Black and Decker uh, told me, which I write about in my book, he told me that it cost the same, the same to produce a power tool in the United States than it did in China. And that's the kind of rebalancing that I'm discussing. Oh, and by the way, he mentioned he also gets a branding effect, a marketing effect, because it says it's made in America. Obviously, the U.S.-China tensions have gone on for really quite a long time. So this localization trend is driven by all of those things, environmental, energy costs, technology improvements, the U.S. shale revolution, rising wages in China as it moves into becoming a services-based economy more than manufacturing. So reshoring is... um, really kind of one of the stages of what we're describing. So what you don't want to do is to overread what um, this pandemic adds to this overall trend. So I think what this pandemic will show is, and let's just take the Brexit example, um, firms had to make contingency plans just in case there was no deal Brexit. In other words, they would have disruptions to their supply chains. So you see a buildup of inventory, some more sourcing of suppliers um, within the UK itself. And some of that, if it's driven by geopolitics, is not efficient. But if it reflects improved technology and consumer preferences, um, this kind of marketing effect, what customers would like to see, then I think it begins to change that calculus, which is why I think um, you don't want to say, okay, well, this means we go back to some state uh, at some you know, autarky or no trade, and certainly not. But I think what it will do is to rebalance and diversify supply chains to make them resilient. And businesses will do this for efficiency reasons and customer reasons and technology reasons. Um, but I think this pandemic we'll call some of them to begin to look at investing in R&D and technology in order to be more productive should there be supply chain disruptions. So the minute you talk about diversifying out of China and the top 10 manufacturing countries, you're already rebalancing. And most firms won't do that if it doesn't make sense commercially. Um, but this pandemic, I think, is, is this where it forced the trend a bit more. And we'll see. You know, we'll have to see. Because the calculation, sorry, the calculations are not just the economic ones. They're going to be about security. Yeah. So procurement come down, down to things like food. Where do you get your food from? Not just where do you get your masks from. Where do you get your food from? And can you rely on partners? Do you fought with once partners who may also be political strategic rivals? Which was, I think, the point Peter was making. Peter, I got uh, t- two questions for you, but I think they're more or less saying the same thing. Uh, you kept denying, you, you said you were once a policymaker, now you're kind of an advisor. But this actually, I think, is very much directed towards you. And it really raises the question about anticipation of crisis. Uh, and what is, one, of the, one of the questions asked a very good question, anticipatory policymaking. Another question, just to put the two together, I think one can, the lack of preparation. 
in, in most countries, not in all. Taiwan, I think, is an honourable exception, and possibly Vietnam and one or two others. New Zealand stands out, it seems now. Um, what about this lack of preparation? Anticipatory policy making seemed to be absent, did it not, Peter? Does this not tell us a lot about the failure of Western liberal democracies? Um, well, one of the interesting things about the this pandemic, of course, is that, and I think this has been uh, this is widely known that it had been uh, identified as a potential risk uh, for a long time. I mean, going back to um, you know SARS and and earlier episodes, and I think you know. If it appeared to, to take some people by surprise when it finally happened, it was because there had been such a long period in which it hadn't materialised. And that's one of the problems with um, anticipatory uh, policy making is that the breadth of potential threats and risks is massive. And you have to make some judgments about which ones you think are more likely and which ones are more risky and so on you i mean you simply, i mean governments no government can can prepare itself completely for all of them uh without uh bankrupting itself and um if there are more um conventional as it were man-made uh threats then of course you run into what um some people call the quinlan paradox that's uh, uh invented by michael quinlan one of uh, my predecessors in the role I had in the MOD, uh, which is that um, if you're expecting something to happen, um, then you make preparations in order to stop it happening, and then it doesn't happen. Um, so you always end up being surprised by the things that you hadn't uh, prepared for, um, because by definition, if you prepare for them, they don't happen. Um, so, I mean, it's a, it's a good question, but I think... Um, it's too easy, particularly in the current circumstances, to say, well, you know, people didn't prepare enough and all the rest of it. Um, one's just got to bear in mind that there are um, a raft and a wide range of potential threats. Um, what I do think will come out of this is, um, and it goes back to my point about a broader definition of national security, um, I think people will be looking more widely where at potential uh, threats to our security and societies and going about it in a more systematic way, that will raise some big questions, um, which is that if you want to be prepared for these things, if you want to anticipate them, then you're going to have to invest in a lot of um, capability. It may be PPE or whatever it is that you may never have to use. Um, and I mean, the armed forces have been doing this for years. Mm. I mean, you know, the United Kingdom has a nuclear deterrent, mm. and we've always been, been we've been proud of the fact that we've never used it. <laughs> we don't want to use it. We say that if we ever had to use it, it would show that it would fail. That sort of thinking is not so prevalent across the civil sector, and perhaps we're going to have to think like that more broadly in future. Yeah, well, the historical parallel there with the Cold War, I think, is well is telling. We built up massive defence structures. We invested massively in nuclear weapons uh, on the assumption that we never wanted to use them. And I think push, pushing back a little bit against you, 
I'm not talking about one particular government, but let me mention the British government just for a second. It does seem to me here that uh, we did know that something was coming towards us. We've been talking about this for some time. It's, it's not a black swan event, as I pointed out the other day, or I've got into a discussion about it. It wasn't totally unexpected. It was quite high up on the list. And the question of lack of preparation by some governments, but not by others, does strike me as something we need to answer. Why is it that Germany seems to have prepared much better for it? But let's be perfectly honest, the UK, judging by the, the deaths, uh, seems to have prepared much much less efficiently or, or, or intelligently or imaginatively. What do you think? Well, I'm not so sure about Germany preparing better for it. Okay. And one of the reasons why Germany was able to ramp up so quickly to mass testing is because it had the mass industrial capability in its pharmaceutical industry mm -hmm. that we have largely lost. Mm -hmm. so this is one of the things that, you know, it's where, if you like, the two parts of this conversation come together, uh, Linda's and mine, is that if we're going to be better prepared for these sorts of things in future, or to be able to mobilize uh, more rapidly, as our, as our German friends did, um, you know, we're not going to be able to rely on, uh, you know, the industrial capacity for this, that and the other being in another country. We're going to have to think much more carefully about what we keep on shore. No, thanks. thanks for that, Peter. I thought I'd push back on that one a wee bit. I've got a lot more questions of coming in. One very interesting question, which takes us away from China or the United States or the EU or Germany or the UK, was the question of Africa. Um, what impact is this COVID-19 likely to have? Um, could it be that out of this, Africa may emerge um, as a place more attractive for investments? Somebody asked that question as well. Africa may be impacted, but the youth structure of Africa suggests that it may not have such an impact. We don't know. It's certainly beginning to. Could we bring Africa back into the conversation a bit here, Linda? Bring the South in, um, global South in. What, what are your reflections on, on, on that? I know you're not a specialist on Africa, but I'd be interested to hear what, what, you, what you think about what might happen. Could it actually be, in the end, some it'll rebalance power to Africa? As, as one of, that's one of the questions. Mm. I'd get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think, I think, um, I think there's going to be quite a lot of um, uh, difficult things to forecast in terms of um, the recovery phase of the pandemic, but a lot depends on the pandemic itself. And one of the challenges for, I would say, sub-Saharan Africa and a number of um, emerging economies is that the state of public health means that they're pretty underprovided. And if you look at one of the trends in this pandemic, the amount of uh, portfolio flow, so this is investment, um, short-term investment um, rather than longer-term investment, but shorter-term investment, which tends to reflect things like confidence in future growth. More money has already left emerging economies during this pandemic than during the banking crisis um, and the aftermath of that from 10 years ago. And remember then when the Fed um, was going to pull back on cash printing, um, it was called the tape per tantrum, because the Fed was going to taper QE, and it caused five major um, emerging economies, known as the Fragile Five, South Africa, Brazil, um, Turkey, and to really experience um, significant uh, challenges related to debt. So I would say, if you look at the, at the number of countries which are in potential 
of debt distress because of the pandemic. Um, emerging economies, um, if that's the reason why the G20 have agreed to a moratorium on debt payments. So how they cope with the current pandemic matters hugely um, in terms of strengthening their public systems, helping them possibly with debt forgiveness and technical assistance. And it's really for the good of um, people in the global south. And it's for, I mentioned at the start, all of us. Um, this pandemic recognizes no borders. So looking ahead to the next phase, one of my concerns about localization of supply chains is traditionally countries grow by catching up and learning. So it's exporting and learning. So if you have supply chains which are increasingly regionalized, say in the north um, or even localized, I think it's another kind of uh, challenge to countries that might have been hoping to plug into global production chains in the way that East Asia managed to grow very well in the 60s and 70s and 80s by plugging into global production chains. Now, that is almost a double whammy because it was already the case that emerging economies, including African ones, found it very hard to actually move into global production chains because of the dominance of East Asia. So we have been dealing for years with the concept of premature deindustrialization, where African countries and India have moved from agriculture to services, bypassing industrialization, which has been the traditional path to prosperity. So to me, those are the concerns that I would have. But to be more optimistic, I think what you've seen in Africa over the past few years is this vibrancy and growth. And it's been enabled by technology. It's been enabled by um, greater macroeconomic stability. And they do have very favorable demographics. So if you do think about um, shortening supply chains, then it makes sense to think about Africa, East Africa, for instance, countries like Ethiopia, Kenya, that have manufacturing capacity and can actually supply um, Europe uh, in a more timely fashion as wages begin to grow, for instance, in Eastern and Central Europe. So I see huge potential there. But my final bit of, I guess, comment on this is that um, Global trade in services grows faster than manufacturing. The WTO data showed in 2019, global trade in goods um, contracted, but global trade in services rose. So given what I just said about African countries actually moving into services, there's a real, I think, potential opportunity to see if we can open up services um, trade around the world, which helps with manufacturing, helps these countries where they're beginning to head to. And... Um, that doesn't require a lot of crossing the physical borders and that will be less affected by the pandemic, um, at least in the, in the near term. So I'm always, as you know, Mick, by nature, optimistic, um, even though I'm an economist. So uh, I, I think that's the, uh, obviously the much, much, much of the, not, much of the information coming out is, is pretty downbeat at the moment about Africa. I mean, for instance, flowers, which are not being exported from Kenya and, 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 veg and vegetables, tourism collapse of the tourism industry. A friend of mine who worked for the British Council who came, had to come back to Britain was talking to me the other day about Nigeria, uh, very briefly, about the absence of infrastructure in hospitals, uh, the, the very few doctors and trained nurses, etc. many of whom have come to the West, and indeed many of them have come to this country. Mm. So, so the, the picture he painted was a, it was a fr quite frightening one. And of course, the consequence of that is going to be quite simple. One, we're going to see a much larger pressure on migration. 
Uh, we've got to think about that, and, and that, that, that can't stop. It seems to me that's bound to accelerate as a result of that with all the consequences on, on security, Peter, that you mentioned. And also in the question of remittances. I mean, many of the, many of the workers from Africa who work within Europe or the United States, you know, they're, they're working quite in secure situations. And if they've lost their jobs, their remittances are not going back. And again, we don't know. Yeah, I don't know as yet what the consequences will be. But I'm glad that you, you, you had an optimistic uh, conclusion to your comments. I've got a question here for you, Peter, uh, from a friend. He says, um, resilience is a term you've used. Um, we all use, uh, it's a trendy term. How do you operationalize it in, in reality? We, we've been talking about resilience, 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 largely, I suppose, in relationship to terrorist attacks. How, how, how well has resilience worked and what does it actually mean, do you think? Well, I, I'm not sure I would accept it's just a trendy term. Um, I'm just repeating the question. A number number of us have been using the term for a while. It's just um, (laughs) acquired perhaps greater interest. Um, How do you operationalize it? Well, of course, it requires action across a very broad uh, spectrum. So, for example, um, before um, all of this happened, um, there was considerable debate about cyber resilience. Um, about the risks to, um, well, events like this, for example, from hacking and so on, um, and and potentially much more serious risks. And that involved uh, being very realistic about the potential risks and about uh, making the necessary uh, investments, uh, sometimes physical in terms of, uh, you know, machines and so on, but often in terms of one's uh, procedures, People talk about cyber hygiene, for example. You can you can reduce risk considerably by you know proper passwords and so on. And then there's many other areas. Um, so um, clearly, in the light of what's happened, we'll be looking at the resilience of our health services. Um, and it may be that, uh, as I was indicating earlier, we're going to have to um, maintain a larger number of acute. Uh, beds in future or um, you know things that would not normally be used or you wouldn't expect to use um, you know, even at uh, busier weekends you're just going to have to build that capacity in uh, so you've got it the other point is um, key to re- building resilience and operationalizing it is building awareness um, I mean I think I used the term earlier about a loss of innocence well, we've been pretty innocent uh, up until recently about mm. many of the risks and threats to our societies, particularly from uh, misinformation, disinformation, and so on. So there's going to have to be quite a big, um, you know, if you like, education uh, campaign about that. Um, and you know, it won't in future just be about, if you like, dirty information. Uh, it'll be about, um, you know, the risks from germs and so on. Um, you know, we won't we won't start the you know reminding people to wash their hands campaigns just just before something happens. It'll be a more continuous part of the way we live. Mm. So I think the, my answer to the question is operationalizing will mean practical steps across a very broad spectrum. Okay, Peter, very 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 full answer to the question again i got lots and lots of questions here and i do apologize to anybody out there i'm trying to pick up a a representative sample from around the world 
and 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 across gender and and, and across everybody else. Um, Linda, question for you, really. Isn't all of this going to impact on prices? Isn't consumer... Isn't the consumer going to be badly hit by this in the end? I mean, this is going to have, as, as another question, is, this is going to, sh- it's deflationary at one level because the world economy at the moment looks like it's, you know, it's in free fall, but it could be deeply inflationary for the consumer, could it not? Because prices are going up, will get, not in all areas, house prices, of course, are going down for obvious reasons, but it's certainly areas like food. Is that possible that those prices will, will go up? So it could be both deflationary and inflationary at one and the same time. Lynn, over to you. Um, I think at the moment, uh, because of the scale of the economic um, contraction, so economists are not the most creative people. Um, this has already been called oh. a greater recession. I'm not sure if that's... Um, so 10 years ago, it was called the Great Recession, and then 1930s is Great Depression. So I'm hearing people use the term Greater Depression. We'll see. I'm sure this will... Somebody will come up with a, with a name. But I think the point of it is, given the scale of the economic contraction, I, we shouldn't be surprised that the data out of the Eurozone this morning is that um, it's deflationary, which has led the European Central Bank to announce a fresh round of monetary uh, measures, including uh, for the uh, the first major central bank to do this, the ECB is actually going to pay banks to lend. It's actually charging a negative in one percent interest rate. So let's just let that sink in. The banks are being paid to lend by the European Central Bank. That's because they are concerned that prices are falling and you'll be deflationary when you have such a degree of economic. Um, contraction. And I have been watching prices um, since we've had this lockdown because COVID-19 is unusual in that, well, it's unusual for lots of um, very worrying reasons, but in economic terms, it's both a supply shock and it's a demand shock. So normally with a supply shock, you don't necessarily have a demand shock of the scale, but in in COVID-19, you do. So what that means is... um, if you look at uh, the what people have, uh, you know, the closing of borders, um, having to buy things more locally, maybe shortages of some things, um, it might be too early to say, but we haven't yet seen um, any of the impact because I think the scale of the contraction is so large, the demand shock part actually outweighs what we originally thought COVID-19 was when it was localized in China, which is that it was a supply shock. So I think that's a way of saying, you know, I think as the lockdown continues, um, we will have to see whether it results in shortages. And this is not my area, but people who work in food say one of the uh, functions, one of the things we may see in the coming months with a continued lockdown is um, you get fewer choices of food products. Um, so moving to generics. Um, so all of that obviously has implications because generics um, tend to be cheaper than, I don't know, specialized, like, uh, what am I thinking of? Um, they kill me here, fancy food of some sort, you know. So um, I don't know why I just suggested you would know about fancy. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Peter, perhaps. So my point is, you really to see the price effects. But given all the monetary objections we've had and the fact it's also a supply shock, it's absolutely right to be looking at this potentially, as you put it, as both deflationary 
and, and inflationary. And this is why this pandemic is so challenging. Yeah, thanks, Linda. Peter, I got, I got a question which was, uh, I'd say, ready-made for you, really, this one, uh, on, on, the, on, on national security, on however we define it. Which regimes in the world at the moment, here's a nice big question for you, Peter, are most exposed, do you think? Uh, I mean, it's an impossible question, but I think it's still a good question. Because, you know, we're going to do risk analysis. We've got to, which states are most fragile? Because remember in the 1990s and leading up, the whole question of terrorism was about fragile states, weak states, failed states. That was the big debate. That was the link between uh, national security and weak states, not strong states, as in the Cold War. What would you say about that one, Peter? How, if, well, I thought, I thought you could put your money on any state, but I mean... Nor would, no. I'm, not, I'm not going to put my money on any state, um, partly because I don't have much money now. Um, mm. <laughs> but there is a link to um, Linda's point um, in that, you know, we were concerned in the past. We thought the biggest threats to the international security system came from weak states rather than strong states. Mm. And although perhaps, you know, recently we've been more focused on um, uh you know, state-to-state competition between great powers and so on, it is still the case that there are uh, weak states that are, in effect, exporting instability of one sort or another, you know, whether it's um, terrorism and so on. Um, You know, not because the states themselves are choosing to do that, but because they can't control their borders and things like that. So, I mean, many of those states uh, still exist. They um, exist in parts of Africa, and um, they could very well be uh, further weakened by what is happening. I mean, I mean, just to pick up on the Africa point, I mean, it's very unclear to me exactly how it is going to uh, spread in Africa at the moment. Um, the virus that is at the moment, in some ways, the indications are quite um, favourable but it could become a sort of slow burn. I mean, it could be there for a while and and you'd have to add it to all the other factors, you know, weak state institutions, corruption, et cetera, et cetera. And if you add it to all those, then yes, there will be the migration, but also, as I said, it will just further weaken those states. So I think, um, you know, I would look at um, some of the states in, in Africa, um, elsewhere, um, perhaps if I could politicize this a little bit, I mean, there's a question, I think, use the word regimes, which is a very loaded word. Um, but we need to bear in mind that um, a number of countries uh, will be having elections in the not too distant future. I'm not just thinking of the United States, but um, uh, an election is presidential election is due in France in 2022, that's not that far away, uh, and a, a um, federal election in Germany and so on. And so um, the consequences, the political consequences of what we're seeing now could very well play out into those elections. And, and you know, incumbents lose power. Um, we'll see. Um, I'm not going to make any predictions. I've got I've got something of a little follow up point, which is also implicit in one or two of the questions. And it gets back to the question of the unequal, if we can use the term, the unequal distribution of the downsides of this. In other words, those who have suffered most, it's a generalisation, are those with least, <laughs> and those who've been able to isolate, stay at home, work at home, 
are most likely to suffer uh, not so much. Put it like that. It's it's a generalization. You get my point. One question which has been asked was asked by Nick Cohen the other day, I think, in an article in the Guardian, is whether we're going to see a kind of another populist backlash if if it comes to be that the the, the real da- the real losers in this, in in, in tragical tragic terms, are going to be the poorest, the more marginal, the dispossessed, African Americans, uh, African Americans, uh, Afro Caribbean, British, Black British. Uh, minorities in this country. Will we see, well, we had this crisis, but we were the ones who suffered. We were the ones on the front line working in the hospitals, low-paid workers, people working in care homes where we've seen so many tragedies. Whereas, you know, the nice, comfortable guys sitting in their nice houses, you know, have not got away with it. They never will completely. Could we see, do you think, Peter, a kind of a populist backlash? Another one which which says who who won and who gained or who lost most in this particular crisis. I know Nick Cohen posed that question. I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Um, I think it's entirely plausible that there will be backlashes of the sort that you say. I mean, whether they will take the form of a sort of populist backlash in the the sort of UKIP Brexit party Mm. form, I don't know. Um, I mean, you mentioned a number of um, communities in this country that have suffered disproportionately from this uh, virus for various reasons. And many of those communities felt that they were rather, you know, under pressure um, 30 or so years ago. I mean, I'm speaking here from a rather dark room in uh, South London. Um, Mm -hmm. So, but but their protests and their pressures didn't, um, uh, and their their uh, dissatisfaction with the situation didn't turn into a full-scale populist backlash. So, again, I mean, how exactly it takes shape, um, any of this dissatisfaction and so on, will depend, I think, very much on, you know, that old political science uh, term agency. It will depend on how individual politicians choose possibly to uh, exploit it it will also depend crucially on um, the choices that the government makes mm. and how it uh, engages with those people. I mm. think everybody now realizes that, I mean, we owe those communities, um, you know, it's an overused term, it's a cliche, a debt of gratitude that we didn't realize. Mm. And, I, and I hope we really build upon that. Mm, yeah. And yeah. at 8 o'clock tonight, we'll all be out, hopefully. All those key workers, including those in the NHS. Linda, you wanted to come in there. Yeah, I just wanted to um, to kind of continue and build on um, Peter's point about government can do something about it. So, for instance, what you find is that it's already the economic evidence um, already shows that highly skilled workers are ones who are able to work from home and do remote working. And that ability tends to decrease with wages and with skills so that um, if you want to make sure that the, um, the people who are less well off and less skilled can work and be productive during a social distancing period, that may go on for some time, depending on whether or not we end up with a, a vaccine or medicine, we're likely to, have to live with social distancing for some time. Then government policy can be used to upskill and provide access to technology. They can encourage businesses to rethink norms of working so that you can have, for instance, um, more functions which are done 
um, at home remotely in the same way that years ago firms thought, oh, just offshore, uh, for instance, backroom functions. Why can't you do that remotely within this country? So to me, if you want to um, think about this as an area in which government policy can make a difference, I would say it can. And one of the real, I think, um, things we have to think about in this pandemic is, you know, there are ways in which policies, government policies, if crafted appropriately, can help us recover better. And I think this is one of the ways it can help us recover better. So target it towards um, helping those who are left, who are less able, for instance, just my one example is working remotely, but there's many others, I'm sure. Kind of to put it in other terms, a renegotiation of the social contract uh, between between those who govern and those who are governed, between the rulers and the rule. And it seems to me that maybe that trend was already there with the populism, because in a sense, what populism was demanding, whether you agree with whatever version of it, was a kind of renegotiation of the social contract. And perhaps this is going to make that even more so. And it's, it has been both extraordinary and uh, moving to see that the way the people who, let's be perfectly honest, we're not, we're not the top of our social agendas, <laughs> suddenly become very important people. Somebody said on the radio this morning, I go out here when, every Tuesday morning when the, the, the guys who clean the dustbins here in Clapham come around, I go out and thank them. Now, you'd never done that before. And I think that we can see this throughout the whole of the National Health Service, uh, you know, the, pick, the people who go out into the fields to pick, you know, peas or carrots, whatever, you know you suddenly realize that society depends not on the A-listers, but on the people who kind of have to do, you know, the tough jobs, or more, of, more often than not the underpaid jobs. And I think that to me is, again, could be, and I certainly hope with, with both of you, could be a most positive outcome of this in the, in, in, in the longer term. I've got one last question. It will be the last question. It's a more general question. We've talked about the uh, number of trends that have continued as a result of this pandemic. Linda, you talked about that, I think, and I think, Peter, you mentioned that before. Peter, you said the world was already getting a pretty dangerous place before this, and it could become even more so. Linda, you talked about some of the economic trends before, which have been accelerated, not just changed. Are there, a friend of ours, Margaret from uh, Switzerland, uh, Margaret Herzig, thank you very much, Margaret, asked the question, are there any reversal of trends are the things which have suddenly been reversed not just continued mm. with you linda then peter and then we'll wind up linda with you yeah it's a great question great um, question yeah yeah no it really is a very great question um okay so this is my uh, my uh, take on what's being reversed um and uh, just as i'm about to say it i realized it was already happening as a trend but just bear with me because the French, I think, already had a phrase to describe frequent travelers, a distinctive phrase to describe frequent travelers. Yes. yes. I think what this pandemic has done is shown us how much uh, work and business and liaising can be done without travel. And so to me, we were in this kind of uh, trend where, you know, you, I don't know, hop on a plane and go to the south of France. I actually think um, it's about discovering local delights. Um, so to me, we'll see whether or not that's the case. And then my other personal view on what's been reversed is, I don't know about all of you, but I always felt that um, we were just getting more and more meetings. Um, 
uh, requests for meetings and there's tons, tons of meetings. Now nobody can meet, but just as I'm saying it, I also realize, I think most of us are on Zoom calls most days, so maybe it's just gone virtual, <laughs> but at least you don't have the commute. But on a more serious point, I do wonder if it's going to change our trend or view um, about physical offices. And one of the things I hope to see is mm. great flexibility of working arrangements. So again, the economic studies show if people have more choice in how they work, whether it's from home to take care of their responsibilities, whether they can do so remotely, control their hours more, they tend to have better well-being. And then unsurprisingly, um, they can actually be, in some circumstances, more productive. So this mm-hmm. might show that actually um, we don't need to necessarily um, work the way we have, and we can work um, differently and maybe go and, and Absolutely, take your one form of exercise a day. I think that's my, my final thought. You know, it's okay. reverse. Is, is, is this the end of air miles? I wonder. Ah. Death, of, death of air miles. Uh, Peter, over to you, please. Well, um, I think one trend that we were seeing that was a rather negative one that was a. a um, reduction in multilateral cooperation. Um, there's there's been an increasing tendency and it's taken uh, various forms for people to detach themselves from multilateral organizations or to be very critical of them and so on. And although the multilateral organizations are currently going through a pretty bad time because they are seen as um, not having handled this uh, pandemic terribly well, one thing, and this goes back to your short-term and long-term point, one trend that might be reversed, but not immediately, is this um, trend against the multilater- against multilateralism. Mm. The, you know, when, when the dust settles, as it were, we might actually see stronger multilateralism. That may be mm. me being a bit too optimistic, because oh, yeah. uh, I can't think of any uh, trends that will be reversed. Okay, thanks. Well, you you heard it here first. Peter's being optimistic. That's great, Peter. Um, A a couple of points I want to make finally um, on on reversal of trends. One of the problematic trends for higher education, I'm bound to say something about that, if if you don't mind, just quickly, because I know we don't have much time, is that this is going to pose huge problems for higher education around the world, particularly for for those countries where higher education has not only become a great educational resource, but it's become a great global resource, which other people from around the world have taken advantage of. We think of the numbers of Chinese students studying in the United States, Asian students studying at the LSE. You know, this is, this is throwing out huge challenges, which we never anticipated, frankly, uh, six months or even a year ago. So a lot of universities are going to be under a lot of stress and strain trying to think through how they're going to survive and prosper as global institutions, because that's what we've been told to be, to become great institutions, you also have to be global. And it could well see that we're going to see some real changes in that and the trend of globalization of higher education. I hope not, but I I think that is a a real possibility. and It's a real challenge for uh, for educational administrators, both here at the LSE and in in other parts of the world. I'd also like to draw your attention to the London School of Economics, from where this comes. Uh, The LSE has its own LSE COVID-19 blog. LSE is very active 
at the moment in, in all these debates around coronavirus, its impact on migration, its impact on inequality, its impact on individual countries. We had a debate the other day with the Institute of Global Affairs think, trying to think, does Sweden offer an alternative way forward? I'll let you answer that question your own way. Uh, we're going to have a lot of discussions about the impact this is going to have on the American elections. We have a big and large and uh, a very vibrant U.S. center here. And, of course, we will continue this debate about the global consequences on international institutions within uh, LSE Ideas itself. We, we established LSE Ideas back in 2008. We're still going very strong, and I hope that this discussion today by Peter and by Linda, and supported by a very able team in the background, Matthew, Gidon, Antigone, David, Dave Sutton, and many, many other, Julia, who really worked so hard in the background to make this a possibility. So thank you for listening. Thank you for your questions. I'm, I hope we got as many of those questions answered as possible. I couldn't get them all in, for which I now apologize. And I'll say good afternoon to you. Keep safe, keep well, and we'll hope to meet in the very near future. Online in the short term, Peter, but hopefully in the long term, face to face. Thanks very much, everybody. Thank you and goodbye.